Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Please note that this episode contains views, thoughts, and opinions that are intended to shed light on this case, but do not necessarily reflect those of the Canadian True Crime Podcast. Please use your discretion when listening. Hi, everyone. Don't worry, the next episode is still coming as scheduled on October the 15th. But in the meantime, here's a bit of bonus content for you, something that I haven't really ever done before. As I was putting together the Russell Williams episodes, I had so many questions about why he did the things he did. So I wrote them all down and had a conversation with someone educated in the space that I know could shed some light. And that is Dr. Lee Meller. Canadian serial killer expert, author, and fellow podcast host. I will let him introduce himself. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hey, Lee, how's it going? Actually, pretty good. I have returned to Brighton, Ontario recently, moved away from the big smoke, and I find myself out here and you're asking me about Ross Williams. Well, Ross Williams killed a woman in Brighton, Ontario while I was living here last. And this is a town of 10,000 people or less. So I'm actually kind of eager to revisit these crimes. It's been about a decade since I really spent time with them. But at the time, they're at front and center of my life. When I came to the end of this case and I realized that I had so many unanswered questions um, about Russell Williams and the circumstances, I couldn't think of anyone better to ask these questions to than you. And I was wondering if you could give my listeners a little bit of background information on who you are and, and how you came to be the person that I ask about Russell Williams. Well, it began with me writing the first exhaustive book on Canadian serial murder. It started that back in 2009. Of course, that was right around the time that Russell Williams became active in November, I believe it was, of 2009. And then I was writing it through 2010. So literally, as I was writing the book on Canadian serial murder, at the same time, I have a serial murderer operating around the area that I'm in, which is probably the least likely place for a serial murderer to be. So I was kind of pinching myself. I'm watching the news headlines, and part of me is going, it's a serial killer, it's a serial killer. Another part of me is going, no, you're just thinking that because all you're doing is eating, breathing, you know, drinking, sleeping serial killers. 
and it turned out to be an actual serial killer. After I'd finished writing that book, I then published it, sold over 5,000 copies of it, and then I wrote the sequel to that, Rampage, Canadian Mass Murder and Spree Killing. When that was published, I was then enrolled in a PhD program. Those books apparently counted as a master's for me, so that was handy. And I enrolled in this PhD program in which I used psychology, sociology, criminology, and semiotics to study abnormal homicide and sex crimes. So everything from serial murder to cults to rapists and pedophiles, necrophilia, all that. And uh, I've achieved my doctorate. And since then, I've been doing my podcast, Murder Was the Case. I interview all kinds of people around the topic of murder and violence, sex crime. So I've had authors, podcasters, cops, criminals who did it, criminals who didn't do it, jurors, filmmakers, you name it, just to begin. So there's all that. And plus, I also am the chair of the academic committee for the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. And I've worked probably about a dozen cold case homicides through that organization. That's really, really cool. And for that reason, I wanted to get started on asking you my leftover questions after uh, finishing the Russell Williams case. So my first question is, why did he start acting on his deviant thoughts so late in life? Like we know that he was in his 40s when he actually started breaking and entering and then it escalated from there. But why was it that he waited for so long, do you think? Well, I think I would preface that by saying we can safely assume that the, 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 like the first recorded incidents were in his 40s. But I wouldn't right. be surprised if at some point in his life he'd also broken into homes or committed some sort of fetish burglaries. That doesn't mean he was doing it his whole life. He might have decided to kind of clamp down at that at one point and kept the lid on it. So what he's displaying is compulsive, paraphilic, violent behavior. And so this means he would have developed these sort of tendencies from a very young age, maybe as early as like, you know, 10 sometimes, but certainly by the time he was done high school, he would have formed uh, sexuality based on dominance of women. And let's just call them, say, fetishistic or paraphilic disorders. So I think that the reason that he didn't act out till his 40s is that there were plenty of social controls and personal controls in his way. I don't think that he really ever wanted this side of his personality to blossom. So he was always manning the gate to make sure that it didn't. And so the kind of controls that he would use to keep that at bay was being so ambitious as a start. If you look at the guy's life, he's a workaholic. When he's not a workaholic, he's playing sports, he's involving himself in community events. And I think he's doing this all for, like, to the extreme that he's doing it, and he's excelling in the military and other aspects of life because it's literally his way of warding off this dark side of himself. And along the way, he gets married. I think that his wife, once again, comes in very handy as a type of control. So he can he doesn't have to worry about being perceived as being, I don't know, perhaps gay or unable to meet a woman or unwilling to. She normalizes him. He, she 
closes that avenue of conversation down. Look, I have a wife now, right? I'm married, no questions asked. I'm normal. And then what happens in his 40s is that he moves away from his wife. I don't think that that is necessarily what does it. It's not like him moving away from his wife means that that cover goes away. He can still use that social cover. But I think that she probably had somewhat of a regulating effect on him, knowing that he couldn't just do whatever he wanted at any time in his own home. And so that gate then opens. At the same time, he probably reaches the zenith of where he can go in his military career. He's commander of the most important Air Force base in Canada, CFB Trenton. So now he's got to the final level of his professional ambitions. And he's also likely coming face-to-face with the end of his own sexuality and realizing that if he waits any longer, all of the fantasies that he's had, that he's been struggling to control throughout his whole life, that he's really not ever going to be able to realize them. You know, the older he gets, the more difficult what he wants to do is going to be. And I think there's probably another factor that we don't know about. I've read that he was on some sort of different medication. And apparently there's a secret here that hasn't been released to the public. So there is an X factor. And I think that that, when combined with everything else I've just talked about, is what brought the wall crashing down and allowed the uh, sex murderer tentacle fetish monster to come pouring into reality through Russell Williams. How did you find out about this uh, secret that you're talking about? It was in the newspaper, actually. Dr. John Bradford, who is a psychiatrist, I believe, either that or very well-respected psychologist, he said that Russ Williams agreed to sit down and talk to him about what it was that happened and that they had that conversation, but he will never say what it is because Williams agreed on the terms that Bradford never reveal it. And as Bradford is by far the older of the two, I think we can expect that he'll probably take that secret to his grave. And, uh, you know, so it's not like William's going to die first and then he can say, okay, I can finally tell you guys what it is. So unless you're able to contact him and, <laughs> I don't know, work your charms to convince him on getting into what that thing that Russ confided in him was you're going to have to do with my speculative but informed analysis in the meantime i have zero charm so (laughs) (laughs) um back to his wife do you think that uh he had like genuine feelings of romantic love towards her or he was just kind of uh fond of her or and obviously this is just speculation but it seemed like he really uh truly loved her and and cared for her do you think that that exists with alongside the man that he was on the inside we're getting a little bit freudian here And that's always suspect. But when I conceptualized this case, I thought she's his mother figure. She is what keeps him being sensible and keeps him on the track and keeps him clean and presentable. And I think their relationship was very much one of convenience. From what I've read about their relationship, it was basically sexless. In fact, 
they might never have had sex, to be honest with oh. you. It's almost like, look, I need a husband, but I'm not really into a sexual relationship with men, but I, I need a cover and I still want some companionship. Great, me too. Let's do this thing. That's the type of relationship that I believe that they had. And given his crimes, I don't think he could arise to the level of what we would call love, although that term itself, you could argue, are we even talking about the same thing when we say love, much less consensus than hate. But I would say, no, not what we would think of as true romantic love, probably more like the sort of attachment that one would have to a female relative or or really close female friend, and that he did care about her, but I think he probably cared more about her opinions of him, and that's where that mother aspect comes in, is he wants to always look good in her eyes. Wow. What do you think is the difference between these people who have the dark thoughts and don't do anything about it, and then those who act, like notwithstanding this um, the secret that you're talking about? Well, there can be any number of things that cause them to act, but the stock explanation is that they simply have a different brain. So we're talking about poor functionality in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which allows for people to restrain themselves and control their impulses and urges. Another is the amygdala part of the brain, where people have empathy for others, and that's sort of the emotional center. So obviously, if you don't feel bad about hurting people, whether they are individual victims or society as a whole, that is another missing control, as would be the impulse regulation of the prefrontal cortex if it wasn't functioning properly. So those are sort of the stock answers, and those can be impaired to different degrees. And I think in Russell Williams' case, they were likely not quite as impaired as most serial murderers, but still would have been that way. We also have to wonder about him going on this medication and if Bradford's secret had anything to do with that. And so a change in the chemical composition of somebody's brain obviously could lead them to act completely differently than they have for the rest of their life. What I'm not saying is that this would have brought up all of these sexual desires and fetishes in him and the desire to commit violence against women, but it might have uh, kicked down the door, or at least sort of lubed up the hinges. So the difference between those who act and those who don't is, I would say, largely biological. But then we also have to look at the circumstances of someone's life as well. And people are subject to different strains and stresses. Some people go through traumas and hardships that others don't. And the more of those that you encounter and the way in which you choose to handle them will dictate the way that you think about your place in the world and how much you want to adhere to what is supposed to be done anymore, how much you want to keep walking the line. And some people just decide that they're on the outside now or that they'll never have a slice of the pie and that the world owes them something or any number of justifications like that. And when, so you can have that paired with the biology or it can be 
something altogether separate or it can just be the biology so there's no one answer to your question but i think i've given you a kind of buffet there where you can see how that the many routes that someone would take to arrive at the point where they go from dark thought to dark action he is clearly an intelligent man I often wondered as I was going through the crimes, why did he do such stupid things along the way? For example, he didn't appear to wear a condom. There was DNA found everywhere because he ejaculated all over the place. Um, all the photos and the videos he took, he was careless with you know, his tire tracks and his boot prints in the snow. Do you think that he perhaps wanted to be caught? Why was he so careless? Okay, so I'll start with just the why was he so careless part and but i've got to divide it into two things because but i've got to divide it into two things because i think there's two separate answers to different mistakes that he made so we're going to start with ejaculating all over the place in the age of dna not using a condom taking photos and videos i would group that into what i would call his signature behaviors so it is his motive He's not going to enjoy doing this unless he ejaculates. He's not going to enjoy it unless there's a condom involved. He needs the photos and videos so that he can relive his fantasy. So the reason he does that is because it's the entire motive for the crime. Like it would be probably easier to get away with robbing a bank if you didn't take any money. But if your goal in robbing the bank is actually to take the money and that's at the, the core of your motive then even if there's a dye pack that explodes on you or the bills can be traced or whatever, you're still going to do it because you're motivated by money. He's motivated by sex without a condom, involving ejaculation, and then reliving the whole experience through photos and videos. Now, when it comes to the other parts of the forensic evidence that are not related to his sexuality, so leaving the tire tracks, the boot prints, I think that's a little bit more difficult. But how I would conceptualize that is just because you're in just because you're in sorry just because you are an intelligent person in an institutional way so you know how to follow the rules you can learn skills how to fly a plane or whatever i think that's different than criminal competence the sort of cunning and street smarts that you get from frankly probably having committed lots more crimes before and having been caught for lesser things so because Williams doesn't have a criminal record before all of this comes to light. We can assume that he's never been caught for doing this sort of thing in the past. And it's the sort of what doesn't kill me makes me stronger principle in that if you are constantly committing crimes and getting caught for them and you live a criminal life, you learn through negative results what not to do. So you'll often hear rapists who graduate to murder say, well, I got caught because a witness told on me next time I'm going to kill them. So they don't do that. So they can't do that. And the same would go for simple little things that seem obvious to us looking from our point of view, but mistakes that we might make ourselves because it, especially if we were driven by this sexual compulsion like he was. So I imagine that he was so much into this idea of being the commando the professional, the home invader. I think that was very much how he conceptualized himself as almost like this elite recon person. 
And so he was so much into playing out that role, even picking the locks, which to be honest with you, no burglar does that. It takes too much time. You just smash the window and reach in. But I think that was a part of his fantasy too, not necessarily the sexual part wholly, but a fantasy of who he was. And he got caught so much in the wearing camouflage or, or sorry, dark clothing and, you know, sort of blocking out his face aspect of it that he forgot about the little things like, hey, if I park my car in the snow, it's going to leave tire tracks. So two separate answers to that question, but I'm pretty confident with, uh, with my answers to those. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. This might be a a stupid question, but it is one that came to me nonetheless. Why did he always strip completely naked? Like, one would think that you could just keep your shirt on if your goal was was sexual. Why why did he always have to be naked? Why was he standing in a backyard naked? And I'm going to give you probably what sounds like a very stock answer to that. And it's simply that in his fantasies that he had been masturbating to thinking about this behavior throughout his whole life, he was naked in those fantasies. I think also there may have been a quality of him that was somewhat exhibitionist, like no joke intended, but it's going to be funny, the kind of like, look at it sort of attitude. Yeah, that simple, really. Uh, It certainly wasn't due to forensic awareness or anything like that, because we've already covered the fact that he left plenty of clues. So yeah, I would just say that that's what he wanted sexually. So it goes to signature again. 
Interesting. Um, another thing I noticed was with Marie France Como, he was violent from the start and, and she fought back hard. And that seemed to uh, be like quite taxing on him. So with Jessica Lloyd, he seemed to tell her again from the get go that he was going to let her go, make her believe that if she complied, that he would let her go. Is this some kind of tactic to make her more compliant and and make the whole thing easier for him? Or was he just trying something else out to see how it would affect her or... I think potentially both. We were talking before about learning from previous crimes. So he might have reflected back on the Marie France Como murder and said, wow, the way that I went about that was not smart. I almost lost control of her. So maybe this sudden blitz attack without any, without emphasis on the, I'm just trying to do this, that's not going to work. And also, but we have different victims too. I mean, Marie-France Como is military and Jessica Lloyd is civilian. So that might have colored the way that he thought that they may have reacted to him and thus his chosen MO. MO is what we're talking about here and how it differs from Signature. And I would say that he went from what we would call more of a more of a reliance on a blitz attack approach in the Marie-France Como murder to using a ruse in the Jessica Lloyd murder. So yeah, he never thought that that he was going to let her go. That was never on the bucks. He was just hoping to get her to be compliant so that he could use her for as long as he wanted and for whatever he did wanted. And the best way to do that is through telling a lie. Look, just give me what I want and you can go home. So I'm always advising people Whenever someone pulls a gun on you or threatens you with violence and says, if you simply do this, then everything will be okay, you have to really take that with a grain of salt, and you should be wary of all the things that could potentially happen if you don't resist. Now, I'm not saying that that means you should resist, but you should be cognizant of something like, say, somebody bursts into your kitchen with a gun and points it at you and says, I only want to rob you, let me tie up you and your family, that that person could be instead of being just a criminal desperate for money, it could be someone who's just lying to you, and that person would have been BTK killer Dennis Rader. So, yeah, I think he just said it so that Jessica would go along with it. And as long as she thought, if I just keep giving him what he wants, I'll get out of this situation... I, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. So he got to maximize his fantasy and pleasure with her. And then at the end of it, just didn't live up to his promise. My next question is about the child porn that was found on the computer that he refused to acknowledge. It seemed to be revealed exclusively in a book called A New Kind of Monster by Timothy Appleby. And in the book, the quote was, technically he would not be classed as a pedophile despite the child porn found on his computer because his sexual interests were much wider than that. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on what this means. Yeah, I hate to be uncharitable to Timothy Appleby, but I don't think he has a very good understanding of criminals or whoever he was consulting does not have a solid understanding of the type of murderer that Russ Williams is. So to begin, 
uh, it's called A New Kind of Monster. And the premise of the book is, he's a serial killer, but he's not a psychopath. We have a new kind of monster. It's like, Tim, there's a bunch of them that aren't psychopaths. Just because the majority are, it doesn't mean that they're all psychopaths. So even the title of his book, the premise of that is flawed. And that carries over to the, uh, we can't call him a pedophile because he has other sexual interests quote that you just gave me. You can be a pedophile and have other sexual interests. In fact, it's known that people with uh, paraphilia tend to have an average of four. So it's not like I'm just a pedophile and nothing else. It's like, no, you can be a pedophile, foot fetishist, sexual sadist who isn't the balloons and the sound they make when you rub on them. I mean, that's entirely possible. So I would just say that he doesn't really have a decent understanding or any understanding whatsoever of what uh, paraphilia is and what people with paraphilia are like. So I didn't want to throw shit at Tim, but it is what it is. I'm sorry. That's why I asked you. It didn't, it didn't ring true to me. Can you explain this psychopath thing that you're talking about? So you don't think that Russell Williams was a psychopath or a sociopath, or am I reading that right? Timothy Appleby said that Russell Williams wasn't a psychopath. And so before we had this talk tonight, I decided I would check that myself because I actually know how to administer the test and I have enough information on Williams where I thought I could do so and get within a reasonable approximation of his psychopathy score. Now, going into this, I was biased towards the thought that he probably isn't a psychopath. Now, what I mean by a psychopath is somebody who scores a 30 or higher on the psychopathic checklist revised by Robert Hare. And yeah, I was pretty confident that Russell Williams would not hit that score, and he fell pretty short of it. I would say he's about maybe two, two and a half times more psychopathic than the average person, but I'm not sure that that explains his crimes whatsoever. So yeah, definitely not a psychopath and not a sociopath either. But one thing that we have to understand about psychopathy is it's not categorical. It's not you are a psychopath or you are not a psychopath. It's a gradient. And if you look at it as something that happens at the brain level, you could almost pair this with the degree of non-functionality in those areas I talked about. So we talked about the prefrontal cortex and how it blocks us from acting on impulses we don't want to. And we talked about the amygdala and how it allows us to empathize or sympathize and and relate to other people and know that they're feeling. Now, it's not like those are just on or off. They can be sort of on. You know, think of it as a scale of one to 100 of how much they can be damaged. And so, yeah, Williams is slightly psychopathic, but not much. And I think that you might see that reflected in his brain scans. You know, there might be some white matter more so than average in the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, but not really enough to be having that as the explanation for his crimes. Certainly not a sociopath because sociopaths are defined by patterns of criminality and they're essentially products of society. And Williams came from a very 
privileged societal position and he shows no other pattern of crime. So just to go off topic, what would you say are the main differences between uh, Russell Williams and, say, Paul Bernardo, who I've read was definitely classified as a psychopath? Yeah, Paul Bernardo is highly psychopathic. I've actually run the test on him too. And yeah, he's always got a score somewhere hovering around the mid-30s. The maximum score you can get is 40. So Bernardo, if you look at his life before the arrest for the murders, yeah, he wasn't necessarily convicted of any crimes, but he was making his living off smuggling cigarettes. He was committing minor crimes all the time, like stealing license plates to put on his car to help with smuggling. He raped and sexually assaulted countless women. I I mean, I think at this point, we're realistically looking at over 50. What I'm getting at here is that his criminality is constant and it's versatile. And with Williams, the only type of crime he really seems to be focused on are these sexual homicides, unlike Bernardo. So that is a main difference there too. Also, if you watch their affect in the interviews, Bernardo is very much stereotypical of a psychopath in that he seems bored, like he's in hot water, but he's he's really not interested in being there anyways. He's, you know, oh, these cops are boring. And uh, he's ar- arrogant, when he's speaking with them, and he quickly takes control of the conversation. And that's exactly what you would expect of a psychopath that's right out of the playbook. Russ Williams seems like a completely normal guy up until the point where it becomes obvious to him that he's in deep trouble and not getting out of it. And that's when we start to see him reluctantly let his dark side out a bit. But you can tell that whereas Bernardo doesn't really have a problem with himself and what he did that Williams is very much ashamed of it and doesn't want to be viewed as a criminal. So that last part got a little bit off topic there, but I mean, honestly, I could talk for an hour about the differences between them as a, you know, psychopath and non-psychopath, but I would say those are the strongest indicators and manifestations of the psychopathic serial killer behavior versus the non-psychopathic serial killer behavior. So another question I had was I was I was quite um, surprised by how upset Russell got about the divorce of his mother and his stepdad. And it, as we know, it caused a huge family rift involving his brother. And he barely spoke to his mum or his brother for, for the next seven years. And they tried to make amends with him, but it, it didn't go anywhere. I noticed, you know, Russell was in his late 30s when they divorced and it seems like uh, his reaction and, and the grudge that he held over the years was completely disproportionate and weird for, for a grown man who was married in his 30s to have. Do you have any insight into that and did do you think it may have played a part in his his actions? I have a hypothesis, but before I say it, I do want to put this on the table. It's just very possible that he had a heat of the moment argument with his mother and brother in which some things were said by both sides or one side that he took umbrage with and just reacted by thinking, well, you know what, if that's what you're going to say or that's what you think or 
you know, typical family arguments. I'm just not going to have anything to, to do with you. It could be something that simple. You know, they do have lives that are comparable to our own. However, if you want to go back to the sort of mother theory, my hypothesis is that he likely had a cold mother, an unaffectionate mother who didn't really have a lot of time for him and probably not for his brother, but certainly not for him. And that actually this interest in women's underwear might have been him going into his mother's space and because he couldn't physically or emotionally get close to her, maybe putting on some of her bras or panties or lingerie and that being his way of dealing with the fact that he never actually felt close to his own mother and then actually playing a part in the development of his sexuality. So if he had these sort of feelings towards his mother, I think that later on in life, he might have become very angry at his mother and that the slightest thing could cause him to just want to expel her from his experience and disown her. Maybe it's a way of saying like, well, you know, you weren't there for me. You never showed love for me. So I don't need you. You know, I'm going to shut you out. So that's just a hypothesis. But I think if you focus on the connection between mother and the dynamics in childhood there and his penchant for women's clothing, I, I think it, it's a pretty decent hypothesis considering we're more or less otherwise fumbling around in the dark. No pun intended. By all accounts, um, Russell seemed to be quite remorseful. He he was seen to cry. He issued what appeared to be a sincere apology to the families of the victims. Um, but then it came out that he had not paid the $8,800 that he owed in victim surcharge fines and then a debt collection agency pursued him for those. I feel like if he was sincerely remorseful, then he would have paid those fines at least. Uh, what, What do you have to say about his expressions of remorse and the sincerity of those? Russell Williams didn't have remorse. Russell Williams had regret. And when he cried, he cried for himself potentially for his wife a little bit, but mostly he was crying for the fact that his reputation had been soiled and that all his dirty secrets would be coming out and that he'd be spending the rest of his life behind bars. Now, he might have channeled that in a way which made it appear that it was remorse, but as you said, there's like actually walking the walk and talking the talk. And so he talked the talk reasonably well. I never did believe him, but... Afterwards, when he has to walk it, it becomes pretty evident that, yeah, I was confirmed in my suspicions that it's regret that he felt, not remorse. Do you feel that his wife, there was a chance that she had an inkling that anything was happening there? Like she she said that she had no idea and she was devastated and destroyed by, by the revelation of what he'd done. But I feel like she surely must have seen or known something about about any of this. That's very difficult to say. It is hard to imagine her having no inkling. She might have 
had a kind of cognitive dissonance and looked past certain behaviors and then forgot about them. You know, her not wanting to address, "Mm, there's something up with my husband, so I'll just put it out of my mind and, and dealing with it like that. But it's also possible that he used his career in the military at a very high level to obfuscate some of the telltale signs. So I'll give you a concrete example. When they went and searched his garage, I believe it was, they found all kinds of underwear that he had taken from these fetish burglaries in boxes in the garage. That's if I'm remembering it correctly. It could be the basement or something. But yeah, whatever. He had, yeah, like hundreds of pairs of underwear that he'd stolen. And you're thinking, well, how come she didn't know about that? That's really strange that he'd be able to keep all that. Well, if he pulled the don't go into the garage or don't look into here because it's top secret classified confidential Canadian military stuff on her, then she would have a reason to respect that, especially someone who is pretty, I would say pretty married to a straight laced place in the system type of life. So yeah, all he needs to say is that. And then she thinks, okay, well, I can't go in there because it's secret documents and I don't want to get Russ in trouble and I wouldn't understand them anyways. I'm not really interested. And in reality, it's um, underwear from fetish burglaries or photographs that he'd taken. You know, you can't use this computer because this is the one for my military stuff. I think that he very much would have used that to this to cover for the criminal activities that he was doing. Yeah. So with all of the questions that I've asked and your knowledge on this case and your qualifications, is there anything else that you think my listeners might want to know about this that I haven't asked? Okay, yeah. There's something that really disturbs me about this case that seems to indicate that Williams has a more disturbing pathology than perhaps Bernardo, and that's hard for us to believe. But Bernardo recorded the sexual assaults of his victims, but he never recorded the murders of them. And so I think when we look at the Bernardo case, we can look at somebody who is a sexually sadistic rapist, and we can say, well, look, he's creating porn of himself with his victims for himself. But it is about the torturous and violent sexual assault, but it is about the sex ultimately, even though that has a heavy dominance aspect. What Russell Williams recorded with Marie France Como was her death, slowly suffocating on duct tape. Why would he record her death? Why would he do that? I mean, you can assume that Bernardo recorded it because he didn't need it to get off. Maybe it was just a chore to be done later and maybe he thought well this will really get me in trouble if anybody ever finds this so it's just smart not to record it but for Williams he found it necessary to record her slowly dying and because I believe he was using all of this media as pornography we then have to ask was Russell Williams actually aroused by watching Marie France Como die to the point where he wanted to record it and and later watch it and masturbate to it because it was so arousing to him. I think that's a really sinister thought 
but the evidence certainly seems to point in that direction. I mean, why not just turn off the camera at that point? Well, that's that's like super interesting <laughs> and terrifying. Thanks again to Lee Meller for giving up his time to answer my questions. Definitely a lot to unpack in this case. If you'd like to hear more insights from Lee and his special guests, go and check out his podcast, Murder Was The Case. One thing that might be of interest is his recent interview with Rodney Stafford, the father of Victoria Stafford, which was actually recorded in a small office at the Royal Cinema right before our live show in Toronto this summer. So I'll sign off now and I'll be seeing you again in just a few days with the next scheduled episode. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed, 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.